Last week we began to talk about the church praying during a crisis. I started the sermon by reminding us that we often know what to do, but we may not know how to do it. All of us would agree, I think, that if we're in a crisis, we should pray, but maybe we don't know exactly how to pray in that context. And those of us who have been in church for a long time, we might even take that question for granted. Maybe we think it's a little silly. Well, how to pray? Well, I know how to pray. But remember that even the disciples of Jesus asked him to teach them to pray. And one consideration that helps us answer this question is to examine how the early church prayed when they faced their first challenge. We've been over this for several weeks now. Peter and John are arrested after healing the lame man at the temple gate and are subsequently told not to speak to anyone else in the name of Jesus. And upon their release, they immediately return to their fellow Christians and they pray. Last week, we noted that they prayed with the community of God and that they prayed under the sovereignty of God. For those of you who are linguists, you might note that we're dealing, uh, we just dealt there with two prepositions and today we're going to have two more prepositions, different ones. So they prayed with the community of God. They prayed under the sovereignty of God. Today we'll look at the final two prepositions relating to how the early church prayed as they faced this crisis. I'm going to read the passage again that we read last week from Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23 through verse 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In this prayer, the problem or crisis that the church is facing only features in one phrase. And it's only three words long. Consider their threats. You could expand it and say it's actually five words because they begin that phrase by saying, now, Lord. So, now, Lord, consider their threats. That's it. It's the only time in this prayer that they focus on the problem. What, what I want to get at here is that the church is praying through the right focus. Okay, that's our third point. They are praying through the right focus. If you think of binoculars or a telescope, you 
narrow it down until the focus is correct so that you look through the correct focus and you see what you need to see. Ajith Fernando is a theologian and scholar from Sri Lanka who wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. And in this commentary, he proposes a a three-word statement that can help us keep the problem on the one hand and our Lord, on the other hand, in proper balance and focus. Here's the statement. Gaze and glance. Gaze and glance. To gaze is to look at something for a significant amount of time, to focus upon it, and to make that where you're looking, to gaze. And it's an extended look. A glance, on the other hand, is something quick and brief. You look at something briefly to the side. You glance at it. Gaze and glance. The church, the early church, practiced this in their prayer. Their gaze was on God. Their glance was to the problem. Their focus was on God with the glance to the problem, okay? Just this morning on the way to church, I was driving through the, the Largo Trezi area and I came to a stoplight and I stopped. Um, I was the only car, the only vehicle at the, at the stop when I arrived there. Shortly after, while the light was still red, two buses came up on either side of me. Now, let me say this. The one on the left didn't even have a lane. He created his own lane. Um, and I was sitting in the middle, and I, I, I'm not normally claustrophobic, but I felt claustrophobic, okay? These two buses, they were very close. And so I'm focused on that light because as soon as that light turns green, I want to be the first one to get out from this tunnel because I know this bus over here, he only has one place to go, and that's into me. So if he starts moving forward, because the other side of the curb, I know how narrow it is. So as I prepare to to take off, I'm looking forward. Because if I'm looking just to the side, if all I'm doing is going back and forth, looking at the problems, I'm going to run into one or the other. So the only way that that I can get out of this predicament is looking forward and maybe glancing very briefly, half a second to this side or that side, as I floor it and try to get out from between the two buses. I did make it okay, the car's fine, nothing happened. Um, But the principle I'm trying to get at is where is our focus? Even in prayer, where is our focus? Are we balancing those things as we should? Because gaze and glance is not my natural tendency. Actually, that's not true. It is my natural tendency, but it's just the other way around. I I switch it. And so I tend to gaze at the problem and glance at Christ. Scripture is full of examples of the importance of our gaze being on Christ rather than on circumstances or challenges or crises or suffering. What about Peter? I mean, he's one of the protagonists in this story here in Acts. And you remember that time that he saw Jesus walking toward he and the other disciples? Jesus is walking on the water. They're in a boat in the middle of a storm. And Peter cries out to Jesus. He says, if it's really you, tell me to walk to you on the water. So Jesus says one word, come. And he does it. I get chills when I think about this. Can you, I'm putting myself in Peter's place 
stepping over the gunwale of the boat and just walking on the water and looking at Jesus. But what does the text there say in Mark? When he saw the wind, he began to sink. And all of you, I'm certain all of you have heard this story before. You've probably heard it applied in the same way before. But when Peter's focus was on Jesus, he was walking on the water. He was walking on the problem. What was the problem? The storm. Peter's walking over it. When his focus goes to the problem, he begins to sink. And we know Jesus rescued him. He cried out and Christ saved him. But the issue is where was his focus? The author of Hebrews, in chapter 13 of that book, another very well-known verse, challenges believers to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we read this prayer again, we see the vast majority of it is focused upon who God is and what he's already done. We we talked about his sovereignty last week, how much of it is focused on God's sovereignty. And it's interesting because God doesn't need to know more about his sovereignty, right? I mean, God doesn't need me to tell him everything that he's done. There's an aspect of this where in my rehearsing God's acts and his power and his his character and his purposes, that I'm speaking the truth to myself. There's a song we we sing here that Kevin uh, taught us a few months, maybe even a, a year ago, called nailed to the cross. And there's one phrase in that song I love. It says, I will preach the gospel to myself. And through this prayer, it's almost as though this is what the the believers are doing. They're reminding themselves, they're reflecting back to God, his glory. And at the same time, they're being reminded of who he is, his power, his control, his sovereignty. Because we're always aware of the problems, right? We're always aware of the crisis because the crisis is screaming at us. They shout, they pull our attention, they draw our energy, they make us anxious and worried, they suck our energy and they sap our disposition. So we don't really need to hear that much more. A glance is sufficient. Jesus knows about the crisis. So we can confidently focus on him, bring the, bring the crisis to him, Consider their threats, Lord, but then draw our focus in balance to him. And this brings us to the fourth and final principle, the fourth and final um, preposition. When people gather together to pray or when we ask others how we can pray for them, a word we often use is the word request, right? It's like, um, What's your prayer request? Or do you have a prayer request? Or share, share your prayer requests. Now, we're finally arriving at the requests, the prayer requests that the early church made of God. They've prayed with the community of God. In other words, they've carried each other's burdens. They're sharing the load, and lifting it up to the Lord together. They have prayed under his sovereignty, confident that he is in control and has total authority. They have prayed through the proper focus, the focus being God himself, rather than the the crisis. Now we discover what they pray for. When you deal with suffering or pain or crisis in your life, generally speaking, what is your instinct to ask God for? 
in that context. In my case, I, I admit that my default, my instinct is to ask God for relief of some sort. And that's, I think that's understandable. I don't think it's wrong to want the suffering to stop, to want the pain to go away, to want anxiety to, to lower or to diminish. And while those requests may not be wrong, I think they can be short-sighted and shallow if we stop there. What was the calling that these early believers had? What commission had they been given by Jesus? To be witnesses of Christ and to make disciples for him. That was their calling, that was their commission, that was their purpose. What was the exact thing that the religious leaders were trying to stop them from doing? Being witnesses of Christ and making disciples. You can't speak to anybody else in this name. So in light of the calling that they've received, and then on the other hand, in light of the resistance, the pushback that they're getting from the religious leaders... The church asks God to enable them to be obedient to their calling, even under threat. What's the exact words? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What have the religious leaders told them to do? Not speak in the name. What are they asking God for the courage to do? The boldness to speak the truth of God. If you want to put this in, in just a very short statement, the church prayed for obedience. They prayed for the grace to be obedient under the stress of the threat of the religious leaders. Is that your default prayer? It's not my default prayer. The church didn't ask first for relief. They asked that Jesus' name and the truth of the gospel be magnified and spread by God through them. They ask God for obedience to the calling that he's given them, even in the stress, even in the fear, even in the pressure. In high school, I very much enjoyed playing several different sports, and I remember one day being in practice for basketball, and I don't remember what had happened, but the coach was really angry with us, probably for good reason. I don't remember. He was really angry. It was a Saturday um, which meant that we had a lot of time for practice. And he made us start running wind sprints. I don't remember how many we did, but it was torment. And you know, there was something in me, I don't quite think I could say that I prayed, but there was something in me that was just screaming out, stop, make him stop, make this end, make this pain stop, stop, stop. You know what, in thinking about that experience this week, I don't recall myself ever thinking, just make me strong enough to get through this. Give me the strength to see it through to the end. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to be so strong, and I'm going to look at the coach and say, you can't break me. You know, come on. That was never my thought. My thought the whole time, was like, make it stop, make it end, make it end, make it end. And maybe that's how I would tend to pray also. God, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop, make it easier, make it end. 
And again, not a wrong prayer, but then it needs to go deeper than that for us that we are focused upon the glory of God and asking Him for obedience so that we can continue to fulfill the purpose for which He's called us even in that suffering. Now there's one more request that the church makes. They make two. First, they say, enable your servants to speak the word of God boldly. And then they follow it up by asking God to directly glorify himself through signs and wonders that will point to the truth of the name of Jesus. They say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So the twofold request, what do they pray for? They pray for obedience to their calling and they pray that God would be glorified. One caution that we always need to take when we are interpreting the Bible is to note the difference between prescription and description. Just because the Bible describes certain events and relates what happened does not mean that it is necessarily telling us that we should do the same thing. Uh, Judas hanged himself, and you read that in Scripture. That doesn't mean that you should hang yourself. King David had multiple wives, and the Bible describes that. That is not a prescription saying that men should marry multiple women. The passage we're examining today is description. Luke describes for us what happened and how the early church reacted in prayer to this crisis. So then you might ask me, why are you then drawing out principles for how we should pray? Aren't you taking a descriptive passage and making it prescriptive? My response to that question is this. We know that this prayer pleased God because he answered it immediately. So while that does not mean that if we pray in the exact same way, God will answer in the exact same way. It's not a formula. It's not A squared plus B squared equals C squared. But what it does mean is that we can pray in this manner with confidence because we know that God was pleased by it. So if it pleased the Lord when the church prayed this way, then it would please the Lord for us to pray with similar principles. And we know it pleases God because he answers. How does he answer? Two specific ways. The first is that the place where their meeting was shaken. I don't know what the place was. It doesn't tell us if it was a building, if it was a house. They may have been outside, but something pretty dramatic happened. Whether it was an earthquake, whether it was a building, the walls shaking, we don't know, but the place was shaken. What's the purpose of that? This was a sign to them of God's presence and power. It was as though God were saying to them, I heard you and I'm with you. It was an affirmation to them of his presence. When my sons were younger, from time to time they'd have nightmares 
And those of you who are parents have been through this, you know, you awaken in the middle of the night hearing, Dad, Mom, whatever, you know. And when I would go to my son's room, there are two things that I, well, first of all, the fact that I was just there let them know that I had heard them. But the first thing I always found myself saying, like I, I didn't plan to say it, I just found myself saying as I'd walked in, it's like, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And I heard you, and I'm with you. And God communicates this to the early church, to these believers, by shaking the building. It's a strange way, right? I mean, you know, when I, my sons have a nightmare, I don't go and pound on the door and shake the door. But God, God was, that probably wouldn't help the situation very much. But in this situation, there's a, a display of God's power on behalf of his people. I hear you, and I'm with you. But there's a second way that God answers this prayer. He fills all the people with his spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says here. Now, I want to be clear that this filling of the Spirit is different from what happened at Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, God poured out his Spirit on his church once and for all. And then as history carries on, as each new soul repents and trusts in Jesus, a new son or daughter is welcomed into the family, the Holy Spirit is given to that person and takes up residence in them, lives in them. But what happens here is something different. It's a specific filling of the Holy Spirit. It's, it, you might call it even an anointing. It's, it's God enabling them by his Spirit in a unique way for a specific purpose. They are filled, why? Look what happens. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What had they just asked the Lord for? Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What are they doing? By the power of the Holy Spirit filling them, they are speaking the word of God boldly. I love the fact that it says all of them. All of them. It wasn't just about John and Peter. It wasn't just the apostles. It was the community filled with the Spirit, witnessing to the power of God and to the truth of Jesus Christ. God hears their prayer, it pleases him, and he answers. And we see God's pleasure in these, in these brothers and sisters. And just note, this is important, that again, the Holy Spirit is doing what? He is empowering witness. The people ask for the grace to be obedient to their calling. God responds by filling them with the Holy Spirit so that in spite of the threat of the religious leaders, which was real, the threat was real, they can speak the truth of God boldly and can continue to fulfill their calling as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I really want you to hear this because the purpose of this sermon is not to make you feel bad about the way you pray. I don't want you to leave here this morning going, oh, I did it wrong again. I gaze at the problem and glance at Jesus. I'm a terrible Christian. That's not the point. Likewise, the point is not to minimize your pain or your suffering or the crisis you're facing. It's not to say to you, oh, what you're going through, that's only worth a glance. No. In fact, there are numerous passages in Scripture where we are told 
to ask God for the things we need, where we're invited to, in prayer, pour our concerns out to him. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The King James says, cast your cares on him for he careth for you. Um, give him your burdens, you know. Talk to him about the things that are weighing you down. Philippians 4, 6, you've heard this verse many times. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, do what? Ignore your problems? No, present your requests to God. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John 14, 14, Jesus says this, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it, he says to his disciples. Now we can get into what it means to ask something in his name, but that's not the point I'm getting at. The point I'm getting at, and these are just a, a few verses, that we are invited by God. We're given that freedom to approach him and to ask, to share our needs and to make our requests. God is honored when we ask him for things that only he can do. But the challenge for us today is that we can go deeper. It's not that we ignore those things or don't ask those things, but let's go on to the next level. The threats and the crisis are clear. They're front and center. They're screaming for our focus and intention. We're, we're, we're living still in the midst, still in the midst of a global crisis. I remember talking about this back in March, and we're still in it, right? We don't even know if any progress has been made. And we're sick of it. You know, we all have COVID fatigue and mask fatigue and quarantine fatigue and everything else, but we're still in this crisis. How do we pray? It's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God to protect you and your family and the broader body of Christ from the coronavirus. It's not wrong to ask him for health it's not wrong to be wise in how we deal with others to try to, to for, for their safety and for, for our own. But can we go deeper than that? Can we consider the opportunities in the crisis for the glory of God to explode across this earth? Can we consider the fact that as people are dealing with all this fatigue and, and the uncertainty and fear and economic fallout of this crisis, that maybe, perhaps, there are some souls out there that are going to be a little bit more open and maybe even desperate for hope, for something certain that they can hang on to, meaning Jesus his death and resurrection, his redemption and salvation, and that maybe God wants us to be the vehicles through which they hear about him. So that maybe as we ask God for protection and health, that that be our glance. God, you know about the problem. You know this is going on. You know he, the, the building they were in was shaken. I'm taking that as a sign. Thank you, Lord. But that, that we would go beyond those glances to the gaze on Christ and pray, Lord, enable us to speak your word boldly. The implication being that there are people who are hungry to hear that, that are desperate to hear it. 
And Lord, just show your power. However you choose to do that, signs, wonders, miracles, to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. We are invited to pray with the community of God and not carry the load alone, whether we're talking about a corporate issue or an individual issue, we are invited to bear the burdens of others and to allow others to bear our burdens in prayer. Secondly, we pray under the sovereignty of God. We rest in that sovereignty, knowing that he is in full control, his authority is sure. Thirdly, we pray through the proper focus. Our gaze is on the Lord, his work, his will, his power, his glory, And our glance is to the issues, the problems, the crisis. And finally, we pray for God's glory and for our obedience to the calling that he's given to be his witnesses to a broken and perverted and desperate world. Let's pray. Father, we do as a church recognize that um, we are, of course, fallible And though we are sons and daughters of you, Holy Father, we we often are tempted to not live as though we were. So enable us, enable us to live and speak your word boldly because you are our Father You, Jesus, are our Savior. You are the creator of all that is. You are sovereign. You are powerful. You hold us in the palm of your hand. You are love. You are goodness. You are joy. Your joy is our strength. And we rest in you. Glorify yourself, Lord, through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.